Psalm 130. Listen as I read this for us. It's a song of ascents, and it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Well, good morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And as always, it's great to be with you here today to be able to open up God's word together. Uh, As we do so, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, as in every week, we believe that there is not a single person who is in this room by accident. Lord, we trust your sovereign goodness. Lord, we believe that everybody who is here today, everybody who is watching online or hearing this at a later date is uh, someone who you would like to speak to. Lord, we believe that you, uh, you love us, you desire our good. And so, Lord, we desire to Uh, sit underneath your instruction. We desire to sit underneath uh, the teaching of your word and we want to be uh, trained and instructed by your Holy Spirit as we sit under your word. And so we ask that you would do that among us us now. Lord, would you change us and transform us and cause us to leave here different people than when we came. We ask it all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, language is essential to relationship. I think we all know this to be true, that if you can't communicate with somebody using some sort of verbal or other kind of language, there's essentially no depth of relationship that you can actually have with someone that you can't communicate with. Uh, I experienced something of this in 2005. I went on a mission trip to the country of Thailand, And while I was in Thailand, there was, of course, a number of English-speaking people that we went with, and then there were people uh, that were sort of missionaries there on the ground who were English-speaking or who were dual, uh, had had dual language uh, abilities that we were able to connect with. But many of the people that we would encounter uh, didn't know any English at all or had very, very, very broken English and, you know, could say just a few short words or phrases. And it's in moments like that where you realize uh, that without the ability to actually communicate with somebody, without having the same language, there's almost no chance of any deep or meaningful relationship that can take place. If you've traveled overseas in any capacity, you have maybe experienced something like this. Uh, but even if you haven't traveled overseas, there's, there's a phenomenon that we experience here in the States uh, that also is the same kind of thing. So there's this thing called talking past one another, Anybody ever had this experience? Typically, this happens when you're in a conflict, when you're in an argument with somebody, uh, maybe your spouse or maybe a close friend or a family member, and you're understanding the words that are coming out of each other's mouths, but the meaning between the two of you is lost. So you're saying words that they actually, frustratingly, they understand the words, but you're talking past them and vice versa. And that's actually what makes it even more frustrating is that there is no language barrier 
but there's a breakdown in the communication. And typically, where there's relationships, where there's a lot of talking past one another, those relationships tend not to be very healthy. They tend not to be thriving and enjoyable relationships when, when you can't adequately or sufficiently communicate or share the same language with one another. So I think we all have a sense of this, that language is essential to relationship. Now, as Matt said earlier, we are taking these next five weeks leading up to fall kickoff, and we are looking at some uh, passages in the Psalms. And one of the things that makes the Psalms such an enjoyable portion of Scripture, and one of the reasons why the book of Psalms is so uh, beloved to so many people, is that the book of Psalms gives us language to bring every kind of situation to God in prayer. As you look at the book of Psalms, it's a collection of songs and poems and hymns uh, that God's people would meditate on, that they would recite, that they would sing together. And these psalms, these songs, are designed not only to shape the individual person, but they're designed to shape the collective life and identity of God's people. And the psalms give us language to bring every kind of situation to God in prayer. So in the psalms, you have the highest of highs. You have the psalmist when things are going right, when everything is going good, and you also see the the psalmist in the valley of the shadow of death, and then everything in between. And we can all, no matter where we come from in life, we can all open up the book of Psalms on any given day and probably identify with the psalm that we read for that day. Certainly, we experience the same highest of highs and the same dark valleys that we see expressed in the Psalms. And the beautiful gift of these, uh, this portion of Scripture is that it, that it helps us, it gives us language to be able to come to God with every kind of situation and engage in relationship with Him. That's the goal of all this. It gives us language so that we can have a relationship with God. Now, the Psalms are, uh, one of the ways you could use the Psalms is to just sort of read them back to God as if they are your own prayer. That's one way to do it. Uh, but the Psalms, I think, are, are, are supposed to be something of a set of training wheels for us. They're supposed to be something of a template, not that we just sort of rotely recite back to God what the psalmist says, but as we read the Psalms and as we're shaped by them, we learn how to pray. We learn the kinds of things that God's people for generations have prayed for, and that gives us language then and gives us sort of a template that we use to then pray our own situation, to pray our own prayers to God. So the Psalms are this wonderful collection of uh, uh, songs and poems uh, that give us the language to bring every kind of situation to God in prayer. So we're looking at Psalm 130 today, and Psalm 130 sort of fits within this smaller little section of the book of Psalms. Uh, If you were to to look at it, Psalm 120 through 134 all have a little subscript. Okay, so if you were to look in your English translation, right underneath where it says Psalm 130, you'll see this little, in little print, it says, a song of ascents. And you'll see that on every Psalm, Psalm 120 through 134. And what this is indicating to us is that these psalms were created and crafted to be used as God's people would make the journey up the hill to enter the the temple and engage with God in relationship and offer sacrifices and encounter him there. So these are all psalms that are designed to teach us something of what it looks like to approach God, what it looks like to come before God in relationship. 
Now, I think that what we could do is we could spend a whole series just looking at these, uh, this set of psalms here, uh, but if you were to take the time to look at them, what you would see is that they don't, they don't all say the exact same thing. They sort of come at it from different angles and different perspectives, and I think collectively together, what Psalm 120 through 134 do is they give us something of a collective picture of how to approach God, and so that's what we're going to be thinking about today. And uh, of course, these psalms are not concerned to give us all the answers to questions that we may have, okay? So these psalms are not primarily designed to, to, to give you advice on how to have a good quiet time. That's not what they're designed to do. What these psalms do, rather, is they give us uh, not, they don't give us sort of advice, they don't give us a method, but what they give us is a posture, the posture with which we should come before God. And so that's what we're going to be looking at specifically in this passage today. And so the question is, how do we approach God? What does that look like? What is the posture with which we approach God? Well, as we look at the text, we see this. First, we remember who we are. As we approach God, number one, we remember who we are. Look in verse one. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. So the psalmist here is crying out to God out of what he calls the depths. This is language that if you're familiar with the psalms is used often throughout it. And sometimes in the book of Psalms, uh, language of the depths refers to something of a emotional or spiritual agony or turmoil that the psalmist is experiencing. In this particular psalm, Uh, I think the sense of it is a little bit different than that. So the sense of it, you could read verse one like this, and I think get sort of the sense of what the psalmist is saying. So verse one could be read, out of the depths of my brokenness and sinful condition, I cry to you, Lord. I think that's the sense of it. Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. And I think we know that this is true because you go on to read verse three, which says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? So in these first few verses here, what the psalmist is doing is the psalmist is coming before God and he's recognizing something of his condition before God. He's coming before God, recognizing that he is a person who is in desperate need of the mercy of God. And so he comes before God and he cries to God out of the depths of his brokenness and out of the depths of his sinful condition and he says, God, I need you to extend mercy to me I need you to be gracious to me because, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, if you kept track, if you kept score, I could not stand before you. And, Lord, if who of anybody could ever stand before you if you kept a record of sins? And, of course, the clearly implied answer to that question is what? Nobody. There is nobody who could, in their own strength, stand before God if he kept score, if he kept a record of our sins. And so we all find ourselves in the same position as the psalmist is here. We all, like the psalmist, stand before God as people whose lives have brokenness, areas of sinfulness, areas of idolatry. We all come here with a certain kind of ugliness that lives inside of us. Now, this concept of, the concept of sin, not just that we sometimes do bad things and it's sort of a, you know, that doesn't really happen all that often, but what the Bible, sa- what the Bible says about sin, that is that we are deeply at the heart level corrupted. It's, 
this is not exactly a popular or mainstream concept, as you might guess, <laughs> right? This is not what you like talk about if you're at a party trying to like make new friends. You don't open up that conversation, <laughs> right? Because this, this is just one of those things that is, this is a hard teaching of the Bible. And we just have to recognize and affirm that what the Bible says about who we are is not exactly a wonderful thing for us to, <laughs> to accept. But nonetheless, this is the picture of reality that the Bible paints for us. The picture of reality that the Bible paints for us is that there is no human being who's naturally inclined to love God or obey his instruction. There is no human being who, apart from the divine intervention of God, loves God with their whole heart, mind, and strength, who does everything they do out of an act of worship and allegiance to him, who does so with a heart filled with joy, not following the rules because we have to and I'm going to grit my teeth and bear it, but doing it delightfully and joyfully, everything God commands, there is nobody who lives that way. And likewise, there is nobody who not just, not just keeps the rules, but whose heart fully delights in God, who loves their neighbor as they would love themselves. That's just the reality is that there is no person There is no person like that. Every single human being has been corrupted by sin. Now, I get that this picture of this picture of reality, especially if you're here today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, I get how this sounds. You can maybe uh, imagine people in your mind, uh, friends, neighbors, coworkers, where if you imagine having this conversation with them, uh, the subject of sin comes up. Uh, that's a very uncomfortable conversation to have. And someone might say, or would at least think to themselves, you know, this is part of why Christians are sometimes not that enjoyable to be around, is because they're constantly looking at the negative stuff in everybody. And they're constantly saying, you know, everybody's bad and you're a sinner. And they're constantly living in this sort of bleak, pessimistic, hopeless feeling reality of look at how corrupt everybody is. And they maybe have even seen some of the videos that uh, maybe some of you have seen. Very famous street evangelists. I'm not going to name names. But people who go out and and do their best to, to back people into a corner to say, you know, have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever looked at someone lustfully? Have you ever done any of these things? And the end goal of it is to back someone into a corner and they say, well, yeah, I've done those. And they say, ha, see, I got you. You're a terrible person and you need Jesus. And it seems like the, sometimes the way that Christians use the doctrine of sin is to bludgeon people into thinking that they are the worst person that they possibly could be. And so it's no wonder, isn't it, that Christians who tend to be hyper-focused on this kind of thing without being balanced in what the Bible teaches are not a whole lot of fun to be around. I wouldn't want to be around a person like that, and I'm certain that none of you would want to be around someone like that either. So on the one hand, like, we just have to recognize that, that what the Bible says about sin is this is a hard teaching. We, ha- we can't soften it, right? We can't try and come up with reasons why, and, you know, to talk to people about the, the subject of sin to try and make it look not as bad as it really is. That does nobody any good to approach it that way. So th- there is an element of this where if we just stop right here, yes, this is pessimistic. Yes, this is sort of depressing, Yes, we should all feel very discouraged about who we are if this is where we stop. 
And yet this only seems pessimistic if we stop here. We have to not only see who we are, which is not exactly a uh, glowing, wonderful picture. We have to not only see who we are, but secondly, we remember who God is. So this is how we approach God. Number one, we remember who we are, that we are in desperate need of God's mercy. We have rebelled against him. We have done what is right in our own eyes. But we have to also remember who God is. And what the text says about who God is, is just highlight a few things. He is the God who meets us in our distress. Now this is fresh in my mind because we just went through 21 weeks in the book of Exodus, okay? So I'm gonna sort of reflect on a little bit of what we spent the last 21 weeks thinking about. In Exodus chapter three, we see God coming to Moses and saying, I have heard the cries of the people and I am concerned about them. And the rest of the book is God hearing the cries of his people and meeting them in the midst of their distress and giving them the thing that their heart most desperately needs. Not only to be freed out of slavery in Egypt, but to be brought into the gracious presence of their king, Yahweh. And so we see a picture of God hears us in our distress and he meets us in our distress. And then you come to Exodus chapter 32. Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving instructions for how to build the tabernacle, which is God's provision for how his presence is going to be with his people. And the people are at the base of the mountain while he's up there, and they are worshiping at the feet of a golden calf. They completely blow it. And so God says to Moses, yeah, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to kill all of them and start over with you. Moses then intercedes on behalf of the people and says, no, 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 don't do that. God, remember your name. What are the Egyptians going to think of you? What are the other nations going to think of you if you bring us out here just to kill us in the wilderness? So he appeals to the, to the reputation of Yahweh, and he appeals to the character of Yahweh, saying, God, you made these promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You can't go back on those promises you made. So he appeals to the name and the reputation and the character of God. And, and more surprisingly than the fact that Moses intercedes for the people instead of taking this, uh, you know, like this good deal of I'm going to kill them all and start over with you. Moses, you are going to be the new Abraham. He rejects that and then God listens to Moses. God hears Moses and responds to the outcry of Moses. And he turns from the disaster that he promised to bring on the people. And so you have a picture in the book of Exodus, once again, of God meeting his people in the midst of their distress. They have blown it. They are fully deserving of the justice of God coming upon them. And yet God hears the cry of Moses and turns away from the disaster that he was going to bring on them. And then you come to this psalm here where the psalmist is crying out to God out of, the, out of the depths, Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to my cries for mercy. The psalmist is crying out to God in the first place because he knows the track record of God. He knows that God is the kind of God who hears people in their distress and delights to come to their rescue. This is what the entire story of Scripture teaches, that we are in a position of deep distress God loves us, God meets us in the midst of our distress, and the psalmist knows that. And so this, this prayer itself 
and every other place in the book of Psalms where you hear the, the psalmist crying out for God's deliverance, that's all based in, we know that you are this kind of God, and so we have the courage, we have the audacity to come before God and ask for this. And so you've got this picture in the book of Psalms and Psalm 130 and the rest of scripture of a God who meets us in the midst of our distress. Not only this, he's a God who does not keep score. Verse three, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. So he's a God who does not keep score, a God who is quick to forgive. Some of us know what it's like to be in a relationship with someone who keeps score. Every time there's a conflict or an argument, things that maybe happened decades ago resurface as if they had just happened. And that other person, oh, they keep a record of your sins. Even if it was only perceived sins, they keep a record and they're not afraid to let you know it. And they hold on to things and when it's convenient for them, they will easily and quickly throw it back in your face. Some of us know what it's like to be in relationship with people who keep score. Being in relationship with someone like that is a miserable thing. And the good news is that God is not like that. With him there is forgiveness. He's quick to forgive. Now the essence of forgiveness is it's giving up your right to get even. And this is exactly what God does for us. And of course, just, just to sort of make this really clear, the forgiveness that God offers here is not some sort of blanket forgiveness that God gives to anybody no matter what you believe or what you do. God graciously and mercifully extends forgiveness to every single person who would come to him on his own terms. He's a God who does not keep score. He's a God who is quick to forgive. So he's a God who meets us in our distress. He's a God who does not keep score. And he is a God who is filled with unfailing love. Verse 7, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Again, to go back to the book of Exodus, because we've just been looking at this, this, the language here in verse 7, for what the Lord is unfailing love, that's that chesed word that is used in Exodus 34, when in response to the foolishness of God's people to be in his presence worshiping a golden calf, in response to the utter foolishness of the actions of the people of Israel, God reveals himself to Moses as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in this chesed, abounding in steadfast, faithful, loyal covenant love. And the people, all throughout the book of Exodus, all throughout the story of scripture, it is God's people who are unfaithful to him. The entire book of Hosea is a long book, a prophetic book that talks about God as a husband and his people as an adulterous and prostituting wife. This is, what the, <laughs> this is the reality of God's people in scripture is that they're not morally and spiritually superior to anybody. They're continually unfaithful to God and yet he, in spite of, in the face of 
their unfaithfulness to him, he still remains faithful. And so this is the picture of who God is that we see in this psalm. He's the God who meets us in our distress. He's a God who does not keep score. And he's a God who is filled with unfailing love. And this is, this is good news for us, right? When you look at the picture of, of what the Bible says about who we are, it's hard to swallow. It's, it's, it's not a rosy, wonderful picture. And yet, we can, we can face that head on not because we're great, but because we see a picture of who God is. We see, yes, we see who we are, but then we see who God is, and when we see him for who he is, it makes it so much more, <laughs> it's so much more tolerable to accept who we are when we know who he is. So God reveals himself in this way. So we remember who he is, and everything we see about God in this psalm, that he meets us in our distress, he doesn't keep score, he's filled with unfailing love, Everything we see about God in this passage, this is good news for us. And yet it gets even better because everything the psalm points to, everything it communicates to us about who God is, we see come to fruition. We see come to its clearest expression in the person of Jesus. And so you come to the New Testament and you see that we have a God who meets us in our distress. And in the person of Jesus, God himself took on human flesh and accompanied us in our humanity. He accompanied us in the midst of our distressing, perilous condition. He met us in the midst of the brokenness of our world and he experienced it in the exact same way we do except he didn't sin. He perfectly loved God with his whole heart, mind, and strength. He delighted in God and his instruction and he loved his neighbor as himself. And Jesus accompanied us in our humanity. The one who spoke creation into existence took on his created order in order to come near, be near to us which is absolutely unthinkable. And it shows us that God is not distant from us in the midst of our distress. God is not distant from us in the midst of the brokenness that we see and experience around us. God is, has come near to us in that by sending us his son. And so you have God himself and the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, taking on human flesh and coming to inhabit the distressed world that we inhabit. And we see also in Jesus that God doesn't keep score. God is quick to forgive. We see at the cross that the death of Jesus makes forgiveness possible for every single person. At the cross, as Jesus suffered and died in our place for our sin, God himself absorbed the sting of our sin and absorbed the pain of our sin into himself so that the justice of God that we rightly deserve because of the ways that we have rebelled against him. That justice could pass over us and that instead we would be viewed as a son and daughter of God. And so in Jesus, we see that God has given up his right to get even with us, with those who come to Jesus, who come to God on his terms, who trust and love Jesus, who have given their lives and their allegiance to him. With those people, God has given up his right to get even and he has forgiven us by absorbing the sting and the pain of sin into himself. So we see that God meets us in our distress. He doesn't keep score. And we see at the cross that he is filled with unfailing love. It is a cross of Jesus that is the clearest demonstration in all of scripture of the covenant faithfulness and loyalty and love of God for his people. What the cross shows us is the lengths to which God will go 
in order to remain faithful to the covenant promises he's made. He's made promises that he will defeat sin, he will defeat evil, he will crush the head of the serpent. And it was by sending his son to suffer and die that he remained faithful to his covenant promises. What this shows us is the lengths to which God will go to extend his mercy and his compassion and his forgiveness and his grace and his love to those who would accept Jesus, to those who would give their lives and their affections to him. And so this is the picture we see of who God is in this psalm, is that he's a God who meets us in our distress, he doesn't keep score, and he's filled with unfailing love. And we see this coming to its clearest expression in the person of Jesus. And so the, the response to this, the only reasonable response to this is that we cast ourselves on him. So this is, this is the posture with which we approach God. We remember who we are. We remember who God is. And then we cast ourselves on his mercy. Verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, that is in his promises, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. And so this is our response. When we recognize who we are, when we have seen who God is, we then cast ourselves on him. We entrust ourselves to him. We surrender ourselves to him in obedience, in worship, and in allegiance. And so for many of you here today, as, you, uh, as we respond to this by coming to the Lord's table, uh, this will be uh, not the first time. You, you, have, you have come to the Lord, you have confessed your sin, you have given yourself to him. This is an ongoing daily thing, is that we continue every day to believe the gospel fresh. And this is another opportunity for us to come to the Lord in confession, in repentance, and to receive gladly the gift of God's mercy and his grace given to us. For some of us, this will be the thousandth time we have, we've had this experience. And maybe for some of you, this would be the first time that you experienced that here today. But whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, the invitation is still open for everybody who would come to Jesus and to trust him and to give their lives and give their affection and give their hearts to him. And so this is how we respond, is we cast ourselves on him and on his mercy. As we come to the communion table today, we do so, and what we do is this is a physical reminder. As we have physical bread and physical juice, this is a physical reminder of the lengths to which God will go to remain faithful to his covenant promises. This is a physical reminder of God's faithfulness to us, of God's nourishing grace that meets us where we are. We get to commune with Christ as we come to the table. And it's also a physical act of belief in the gospel for us. Because for those of us who choose to trust Jesus, we have to take the step of stepping out of our seats and coming forward. And every time we do that, it's like for the first time, we, we choose to say yes. We choose to trust him. We choose to love him. And so we physically, as a physical demonstration of, I'm not just going to sit here and sort of do it in my mind, although that's not entirely a bad thing. You get a little bit of skin in the game when you walk forward in front of all these people. And it's something we get to do together as a church family. And we get to remind, be reminded of the gospel each week. And we get to celebrate Christ at the table each week. And we remember the faithfulness and the covenant loyalty of God for us.
So as we come to the communion table today, I'd like to invite you to uh, bow for just a few moments of silent confession and reflection.